0: Now please take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians. You find that in your New Testament uh, on page 986. We are today beginning a new series, uh, Redeemer, for our sermons, uh, studying these two letters together. First Thessalonians is among the shorter of the New Testament letters, but have no fear. I am confident that I will be able to draw it out uh, for a very long time. In fact, today you'll notice in your bulletin that it says that we'll be studying 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 1-10, through 10, but not quite. Uh, we're not going to get through all of it. I don't intend to get through all of it, and, and my plan is that, Lord willing, we will come back next week, look at the rest of this passage. We'll have some work to do to set up the series, to get oriented to the, the book of 1 Thessalonians, uh, but we are going to look about the first five verses, there's a break in there somewhere, but uh, there's some major themes that sort of bleed together. So we're going to look at most of it. We're going to read the whole thing because it is a a, a coherent point that Paul is making in these first 10 verses, but we're going to focus really on the first half of it. Now, as we do turn uh, to the New Testament, to the letter of 1 Thessalonians, it may feel at first as though we're making a huge leap from what we've just recently studied. We spent all of the summer and most of the spring looking at some of the minor prophets, and now we're going to be very much New Testament. The name of Jesus is going to be everywhere. The truths of the gospel will be front and center, and it could feel like we're going to be doing a very different thing. But as you think about that, consider the fact that uh, those prophets, those minor prophets, the major prophets were really God's messengers to tell God's covenant people how they ought to live to glorify him. That's the same thing that we find with the message of the apostles. Paul was God's messenger sent to teach the covenant community of God's people how to live in a way that glorifies him as they wait for Christ to return again. And so there's no uh, surprise that we find in the New Testament that Paul himself says that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Christ Jesus, the cornerstone. When we were looking at Haggai and Joel and Malachi and, and some of the others, they were pointing toward Christ. And now Paul is looking back, but still telling us the same essential message. How should we live in a way that glorifies the Lord while we wait for his salvation. And so 1 Thessalonians today, we're going to be reading verses 1 through 10 uh, and focusing really on the first half-ish of this passage. So before we read this word, let's go to God together in prayer and seek his blessing on our study. Let's pray. Oh gracious Lord our God, we thank you. For the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, we thank you for this, your word, and as we come to it, we pray that it would be said among us today, just as Paul says about the Thessalonians, uh, that the word would come in power with the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. Make us, O Lord, to hear and to believe and to rejoice in your word as you teach it to us, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. We we'll hear now God's word as we find it in 1st Thessalonians chapter 1 verses 1 through 10. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Thus far, the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. May he add a blessing as we study it together today. And it was... uh, Probably sometime late in the year 48 AD, maybe early 49, that the Apostle Paul received a divine appointment. He was traveling with two other companions, two new companions in his missionary travels. He was traveling with a a Jewish believer from Jerusalem named Silas. And he was traveling with a young half-Jewish protege that he had picked up along the way by the name of Timothy, and not long into their journey, they all intended to travel north in Asia Minor and then east and to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ back along the southern coast of the Black Sea. But the book of Acts tells us that at that time, despite their intention, explicitly telling us that the Holy Spirit would not allow them to go in that direction. It was then that the divine appointment came. It came in the form of a dream, a vision in the night of a man from Macedonia begging Paul to sail across the Aegean and to come and to proclaim the name of Christ where the name of Christ had not been named. And immediately, says the book of Acts, Paul and his friends sought to leave for Macedonia. Macedonia was was the region just north of the Greek peninsula and at the southern end of what we now know as mainland Europe. The Roman province of Macedonia is today divided between the borders of three countries, Greece uh, and Albania, and the Republic of North Macedonia. You probably remember uh, the record of Paul's ministry there with his companions. They made landfall... Uh, across the Aegean, and they went to Philippi, where the first recorded convert in Europe was that faithful seller of purple named Lydia. And there Paul stayed with his companions, the trio of them, for a while, but they got in hot water with the local officials because, well, Paul had driven uh, demons out of a young demon-possessed girl, and he had delivered her, uh, and uh, And the owners of this slave girl didn't like that very much, and so Uh, They were brought before the local magistrate. And then you remember how Paul and Silas, or Silvanus, as he's called in 1 Thessalonians, it's a Latinized form of his Greek name, you remember how Paul and Silas wound up in prison, bruised and singing. And then after a midnight earthquake, and then after a candlelit baptism service for the jailer and for his family, well, the officials who put Paul and Silas in prison learned that those two men were actually Roman citizens. And so they brought them out, and I'm sure as politely as they could, requested that they leave the city, which they did. And the next major stop on the journey was Thessalonica. Thessalonica was a very important city. It was the capital of the province Of Macedonia. In fact, the the city of Thessalonica was already a few centuries older than the Roman Empire itself. It was built on a natural harbor, it was perfect for trading, and the Romans built the Via Ignatia, that's their major east west highway, right through the city of Thessalonica, which means that absolutely anything useful to the Romans that came from the east came through the city of Thessalonica. It was a very large, very contemporary, very cosmopolitan city. You could find anything you wanted in Thessalonica. And if, if John Bunyan, not Paul Bunyan, if John Bunyan had written the book of Acts, he probably would have called it Vanity Fair. Now, Paul and Silas began their ministry in Thessalonica. Uh, They were preaching first in the synagogue, says Acts, that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead. And the second main point they preached was that Jesus of Nazareth is that risen Christ. Well, the gospel came to Thessalonica and just like rain from heaven on thirsty ground, it produced a harvest. The book of Acts tells us, chapter 17, verse 4, that some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. You know, everywhere that Paul went and preached, it seems especially everywhere that the gospel was received with joy, well, opposition wasn't very far behind. And so there was a group of of Jewish opponents to the gospel who stirred up a mob and they threw the city into an uproar and they went to the home of a man named Jason, probably looking for Paul and his companions. And they took Jason and several other brothers before the local officials and they charged them with sedition, proclaiming that Jesus was king instead of Caesar. As soon as the mob died down, and it was safe the following day, the brothers sent these three traveling evangelists out of the city, and Paul and his companions traveled south then. They went first to Berea, they went second to Athens, and then finally they landed in Corinth. And somewhere in the middle, while Paul was in Athens, he sent Timothy back to check in with the Thessalonians to see how they were doing for fear, he writes here in Chapter 3, verse 5, for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. Now, perhaps that's a nice little history lesson, but here's what it means for our study together of 1 Thessalonians. It means that by the time Paul is writing this letter from Corinth, he is writing to a very young church in a very precarious situation. Paul stayed just 18 months in Corinth. And that means that even if we are very generous with the travel schedule and and the timeline, that the earliest converts in Thessalonica, by the time that Paul writes this letter, had only been following the Lord Jesus Christ for at most, maybe, two years. There are believers here in this room who are in their 60s, who were converted in their 20s who've been following Jesus for 40 years. And if you are one of those four-decade Christians here today, that means that you have been a Christian roughly 20 times longer than the Christians in Thessalonica. If you are just a two-decade Christian, if you've been a believer for 20 years, you have been a believer for the span of time that would encompass essentially the entire timeline since the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the writing of this letter. The entire spread of the Christian church would fit in the time that you have been following Jesus. Even if you are an average teenager who's grown up in a Christian home, you have already heard hundreds more sermons than the elders who were left to shepherd the Thessalonian church. It is very early days for the gospel in Thessalonica. The church is young, dangerously young from a human perspective. And already these young believers are finding the truth of what Jesus promised. That if the world hated him, the world would hate his followers as well. You know, before the gospel came uh, to Thessalonica, most of the people who uh, ended up becoming members of this church here, most of the believers before the gospel came, they were your average run-of-the-mill pagans, idolaters. Acts tells us that many of them were devout Greeks, or or what the Jews would have called God-fearers. That doesn't mean that they were monotheists. In any sense of the term, it, it meant that probably, like everybody else around them, their primary allegiance was to Rome, and their primary devotion was to whichever god, with a lowercase g, could give them what they thought they needed or wanted. Paul says explicitly in verse 10 that they turn from false idols to serve The living and the true God. They were idolaters, and idolatry was the way of their world. Idolatry was the comfortable way to live. Idolatry allowed them to be just like all of their neighbors, to allow them to go along with the flow of the larger society. But that was before. And now the gospel has come. And now their allegiance and their devotion is given to Christ alone. Now they are a church. The word is ecclesia, God's called out ones. The people that God called to be separate from the world, to live and to believe differently than the people all around them, and that's when the affliction began to settle in. No wonder Paul was worried. No wonder he was afraid that his work might have been in vain. Do you ever wonder, dear believer, if the same would be said of you? Maybe you've been following the Lord for 40 years, 50, or 20, or 2. And by now you've found out how hard it is to be a Christian. By now you've found out how different it makes you in the eyes of the world, how strange you must seem your extended family members and your neighbors and your, and your co-workers, and the squeeze of the tempter is tightening around your faith, and you wonder what will become of you. Will God's work be in vain in your life and in your faith? Will you be up to the task? Perhaps you wonder what will become of the church. What will happen to to God's people when the prophecies of the secular sociologists are fulfilled? When America is actually known as Europe is now increasingly known as a, quote, post-Christian society. Maybe you saw the headlines just last week, right? The, the, The latest Pew Research data that suggests that at the current trajectory, within 50 years... Christianity, even broadly defined, Christianity will become a minority religion in our country. It already is so in New England, of course, but but even including places like Mississippi and the deep south where we think, well, there's Christianity everywhere down there, isn't there? Dear believer, 1 Thessalonians is a reminder that the church has been here before. Today is not the first time that the church appears to be against unbeatable odds. Today is not the first time in history that following Jesus means being unavoidably different from the world around you. This is where the church began. And in many ways, this is where God's work among his church is most evident. As we turn to the text that is in front of us, you will notice that none of the anxiety Paul mentions in chapter 3 is present in chapter 1. Instead, this is a wonderful and light and glorious opening. Paul begins with thanksgiving. He begins with this word of praise. He gives full vent, blessing the Lord for all that he's doing among his church, among the people that he's chosen, because God is at work. The church is secure. Because God's grace will make the church what it's meant to be. That is the main point of everything we're going to study together today from 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, that the grace of God will make the church what it's meant to be. As we look at the text, we're going to see that fleshed out and worked out in a few specific ways. Uh, we've uh, we've already set up the text and spent a bit of time there, so we're gonna have to be brief. Uh, but I think what we find first about the church in First Thessalonians is that the church is a people with their life in the Lord. First point today: that the church is a people with their life in the Lord. Here's how Paul puts it in verse one. Paul. Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace. That's familiar language if you know the New Testament. It speaks to this dual citizenship that belongs to the saints. The the church is a people who live in the world, but they belong somewhere else. Better yet, the, the church belongs to someone else. To use the Old Testament image, the church is God's treasured possession. They are his alone. So he says to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father. Actually, normally in the New Testament, Paul reverses that order. So when he writes to the Corinthians, uh, it's backward from what he says here. That's what makes this introduction so special. He writes to the Corinthians, and he says, to the church of God that is in Corinth. Small details. But Paul's pointing to something significant when he says the church of Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. He's pointing to the fact that there is something about the church that is incidental and something about the church that is essential. What is incidental about the church? What is secondary? What changes as uh, as, uh, the church changes and is is, uh, represented throughout the ages and in different places? What is incidental to the church is the kind of people that show up, where it might be found. So we can talk about the Church of God uh, of the Concordians, the New Englanders. We can just as easily talk about the Church of God of, of the Europeans as we can of the Africans or the Asians or the Inuit peoples of northern Alaska. There's something about the church that is incidental, that changes with the expression of the church in each local place. And it's things like class and race and sex and age and education and socioeconomic status. And all of those things may change. But what is essential about the church, no matter who walks in the doors, what does not change and cannot change Across the centuries and continents is the fact that the church is a people with their identity in the Lord. Wherever the church gathers, they are a people who belong to him. So Paul speaks of the church as being in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, that's Paul's typical designation for the inward spiritual life that comes by being connected to Jesus Christ. So in his other letters, uh, Paul speaks of the benefits that come to us when we are found in Christ. Ephesians chapter 1, in Him, God shows us before the foundations of the world. In Him, we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. In Him, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to His purpose. The list goes on. To speak of being in Christ is to speak of being connected to Him. Speaks of being accepted and and loved and adopted as God's children. More importantly, to speak of being in Christ speaks of receiving spiritual life that flows from God to his people through the Son. That's how Jesus put it. John chapter 15, verse 5. He said, I am the vine, you are the branches. And whoever abides in me and I in him He it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. Separated from Christ, we are dead and fruitless. Connected to Christ, united to him by faith, we have a spiritual life that he gives to us. To be in Christ is to be sustained and nourished by the life that God gives to his people. And that same language of spiritual life is present here in in Paul's address to the Thessalonians. So it doesn't really matter that they might be in a hostile environment. It doesn't really matter that they might be in a place where the gospel is despised, where they might live in a culture where, socially speaking, all the odds are stacked against the perseverance of the saints. It doesn't really matter, incidentally, where they may be found, because wherever they find themselves, actually, they are in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Through faith, they are abiding in him, and by his grace, he abides in them as well. Dear believer, if you are united to Christ Jesus by faith, the same is true of you. Paul's telling us that if you belong to the Son, you belong to the Father. If you have been united to him, you have been enfolded into his family. If you have believed in him, you have been connected to him more closely than your limbs are connected to your body. God's people have been engrafted into the vine of life. And so wherever it is that you may find yourself, whatever uh, physical or spiritual difficulties you might face, the God of grace is sustaining you if you are a part of his people, his church. It ought to give us confidence in the Lord. It ought to make us praise the Lord just like Paul, because the church is a people who have their life in the Lord. Secondly, the church is a people with the gospel on display. The church is a people with the gospel on display. Verses 2 and 3. Paul overflows with thanksgiving to God. That thanksgiving is motivated by the fact that the life of God is producing the fruits of God in the people of God. Take a look, verses 2 and 3. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. It's that recognizable triad from 1 Corinthians 13, right? Faith, hope, and love, the chief virtues of of the Christian life. And just like they always do in the Christian life, those inward virtues are showing up in outward evidences among the people of God. That's what's happening in Thessalonica. Their faith was a faith that works, that's active, that's busy. Their love was a love that labors. One commentator I read said, uh, it is well known how laborious love can be. Isn't that the truth? Their love was a love that labors. Their hope in the return of the resurrected Christ was a hope that held fast despite all the opposition they were facing. And Paul's saying when he remembers these things, he thanked the Lord. Because they're all signs that God's grace is working to make the church what it's supposed to be. In fact, it's it's significant, I think, that that Paul does not make all these wonderful things happening in the church. He doesn't make them an occasion for praising the Thessalonians. Right? Later in this book, in chapter 2, Paul is going to compare them to his spiritual children. And you know how you deal with children. Some of you still have young ones at home and you're teaching them and you're training them up in the way that they should go. It doesn't matter what you're teaching. Pick up your, your toys when you're done or speak kindly to your brother or sister. Uh, sit still and pay attention through a very long sermon. You're, you're teaching them. You want to train them in the right way. And how do you do it? You use lots of positive reinforcement, right? Words of praise. Good job, you tell them. Way to go. You did great today. That's not what Paul says here. Right? It's not that he's worried about giving the Thessalonians uh, overinflated egos. He's not worried about puffing them up too much. But he doesn't praise the church for the good things in the church. Instead, he praises the Lord. And that's because it is the Lord who is doing these good things that can be seen in their community. He says the same thing essentially later in verse 6. He remembers how they received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. That is, that was the source of that virtue, that joy. That was the who that that joy came from. The Holy Spirit was working that into them. He was at work. Among his people, it is a spiritual law. It is always at work among humanity that whatever in us is wrong and deficient and sinful, well, that comes from us. And whatever in us is good and right and true, that comes from him. So when the virtues of the Christian life show up in a Christian community, what can we conclude? But that the church is the place where God has chosen to put his gospel on display. Now, in order to to understand it the way that I'm I'm portraying it, that the gospel is on display, we need to make sure that we're not defining the gospel too narrowly. Hold on there. Uh, the, The Bible does give us a narrow definition of the gospel in many places, Uh, A sort of boiled down, bare minimum, what is the message? Paul says, 1 Corinthians 15, the gospel message is the, the word that Christ died according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he rose again on the third day according to the scriptures. That's the gospel. The gospel is, narrow definition, the good news of Jesus' death and resurrection for sinners. And there's a sense in which that good news can never be displayed again in the same way that it was displayed when it actually happened. It can be proclaimed, it can be believed, it can be uh, received or rejected as the word goes out and people either love or hate this Jesus that they're hearing about. But even if the gospel can be represented, it can never be reenacted because Jesus has already done what the church can never do ever again one sacrifice for sins, sufficient for all time. And that's true. And there's another way of understanding the gospel, and that is to understand the gospel with its implications for our lives. The gospel is, is not a headline that we just shoot over to Snopes to fact check for us, right? Did it happen? Did it not happen? Oh, misleading evidence. We don't know. Right? We, we don't just suffice ourselves with saying, is it true, is it not true, I'll go on with my day. No, the gospel comes to God's people with implications, with, with demands on how it ought to change the way that we work and live and the things that we do every day as we wait for Christ's return. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 13 and 14, it's a gospel text. Paul says that in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. That's a gospel text. Jesus Christ is our peace. He gives believers peace with God the Father. He gives believers peace with one another. And that gospel text forces us to ask, how will that good news change the way that you live in the world? How will it affect your relationship with that fellow believer that you had a disagreement with? How will it change your willingness to forgive and to be reconciled when somebody treats you in a way that you think you should never be treated, actually? How does the gospel of peace show up in your daily work of faith? John 3.16 is a gospel text. We read it today. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. And if you believe that gospel text, you believe that God loved you that much, the question is, how will you love the next person you come across? The gospel comes to us with implications. When the gospel shows up, it forces us to wonder, what are the necessary outworkings that should also show up in us, in our work of faith? in our labor of love, in our steadfastness of hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's interesting that Paul doesn't elaborate on those things. He doesn't tell us what those works and labors and that steadfastness amounted to, specifically. One commentator says that it's evocative language, that that Paul leaves the gaps open to be filled in with our memory of our own experience. And we could do that. We could look around the saints at Redeemer, and we could take stock. We could do what Paul did and remember the works of faith and the labor of love that you've received from other believers here in the church. I actually want to encourage you to do that later on your own time, right? There's an attitude of prayerfulness here that Paul is thinking, and meditating, not just on what God has said, but what God is doing among his people. And when he sees those things, he turns to the Lord, and he gives praise and thanksgiving. We should be doing the same. We should be praying through God's word. We should be praying through God's providence. We should be acknowledging the good things that he does in our lives and in our church. We should do that. But the basic point is that when you see those things, They're a reason to take confidence in the Lord, not in ourselves. When you see those things happening among the community of God's people, they're a reason for us to sit back and say, God really is at work. As you see the way that, that person went and visited that other person, and nobody even knew about it except maybe one or two, and you saw it, They weren't doing it for praise. They were doing it as a labor of love. Can you see the way that parents are trying to hold fast to the hope of the gospel as they raise their children and the entire press of the world is against them, but they're trying to lead their children in a faithful way? Do you see that steadfastness of hope? Praise the Lord for those things. He is at work among his people. He is putting his gospel on display by the spirit that he gives within us. So thus far, we've seen that the church is a people who have their life in the Lord. The church is a people with the gospel on display. Finally, these verses teach us that the church is a people who are grounded in God's word. Church is a people who are grounded in God's word. Verse 4, Paul writes something that might surprise you. He says, For we know, brothers, loved by God, that He has chosen you. That's the language of election. That is the same idea that we already quoted from the first uh, chapter of Ephesians, that in Christ God chose us before the foundation of the world. That the idea that he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. When Paul talks about choosing and electing and predestinating, he is talking about God's sovereign choice in salvation. When Paul uses this language, it's the way that he describes the internal eternal, divine decrees that issue forth from the very mind of God. God's election, completely unrestrained by anything like foreknowledge, right, or or external influence, or any other factor outside of God himself, because, quite frankly, there is no factor outside of God himself that can force his hand. Paul is talking about the The will of God, His sovereign choice, the will in which He delights. You know, the so-called corridor of time is His creation. He made it. And our choice to follow Him is a gift of His Holy Spirit. And our dead hearts are unable to believe until he gives us life by his grace. Even the spread of the gospel through the world and the ways that it goes forth is determined by God's perfect, personal, sovereign choice. you Remember the start of the spread of the gospel through the journey that Paul and Silas and Timothy were taking, how they wanted to go north, but Acts chapter 16 tells us the spirit of Jesus did not allow them. Instead, he sent them somewhere else. And into Macedonia, to Philippi, to Thessalonica, to proclaim the gospel to the people God was choosing. This is basic Pauline salvation theology, right? The God of the gospel is the God of election. And so 2 Timothy 2, verse 19, puts it in a word, says that God's firm foundation stands, bearing the seal the Lord knows, who are his. The Lord knows. He knows because he chooses. But here, in 1 Thessalonians, Paul says, we know too. The internal mind of God, right? The, the divine will, the, the things that he is delighted to work out through his sovereign plan and his providence in creation, Paul says, we know it. That's a bold statement. How can Paul say such a thing? How can he presume to know the mind of God concerning election? Well, he can say it because he remembered how it happened when the word of God came among the people. He was there. He saw it when the gospel went forth, and it sunk into their ears, and it went into their hearts, and it produced faith and love and hope in their lives. Verse 4, we know he has chosen you. Verse 5, because... Because our gospel came to you, not only in word, but also in power, and in the Holy Spirit, and with full conviction. Well, that's a mark of the church of God, isn't it? There are many places in the world where the Bible is studied like any other old dusty relic. Right There are professors with wonderful PhDs from prestigious universities and they know all of the dead languages and they can recite to you all the obscure theories about all those uh, texts that nobody really knows anything about and they can tell you the tricky passages and the historical backgrounds. Right There, there are scholars who publish books and articles and they, they speak at conferences about the influence of the scripture and human civilizations and they chart out the spread of Christianity and the developing world and among all those schools and all those scholars and all those critics there are any number of them who don't believe a single word of what they know so much about. They are men and women who study the gospel in word only. Can you imagine anything sadder in all the world. A declaration of freedom, but it doesn't set them free. A call to life, but they're still dead. Like, like a hive full of so many honeybees who toil and waste their pitiful little lives and never get to taste the sweetness that they're producing. Can you imagine anything sadder in all the world than to know the gospel, but to have it be something that's word only? It's another theory. It's among the world religions. Just chalk it in there with the rest of them. Well, there are people for whom the good news of salvation in Jesus is nothing more than a curiosity, but not in the church. In the church of God, the word of God is a powerful thing. To the church, it is a living thing. It is a sword sharp enough to cut sinners in two. It's a scalpel precise enough to to excise the gangrene of sin that is rotting their souls. And Paul says that when the gospel came to Thessalonica, it came with power. And it came with the Holy Spirit, and it came with this deep and abiding conviction. It's possible that when Paul says that the word came with power, that he might mean that the preaching itself was accompanied by miracles. That sort of thing happened, right? In the early days of the apostles, the gospel went forth, and the sick were healed. And the demons were driven out. And the people who fell asleep during the sermon and fell out of a window were taken up alive and revived. And there were miracles that happened. But when we think of the Holy Spirit making the gospel of God powerful, I think we should probably think of something much more miraculous than those outward signs. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, that he is not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God unto salvation. That's the Holy Spirit making the gospel powerful and giving full conviction to those who hear. It's the power of God for salvation. That's the power that he has in mind here. It is the miraculous work of raising dead men and women out of the grave of their sin and unbelief. It is the reconciling work that makes sons and daughters out of the enemies of God. And that's what the Holy Spirit does when he wields the sword of the gospel in his hand. What does he do with it? But he gives skeptics and sinners this unavoidable conviction that what God is saying is true. That they need to hear and respond. That they can do nothing else. What does he do? But he convinces the lost and the dying that there is life to be found by faith in Jesus Christ. What does he do? But he takes newborn sapling Christians, the likes of which could be found in Thessalonica or maybe here among our congregation. He takes those newborn sapling Christians and he grows them up into oaks of righteousness because they're grounded in his word. They're growing in the life that he is pulsing into their spiritual veins by connection to the sun. And where he does that, Paul is saying, you can see the choice of God showing up in time and space. In other words, you can see God's grace making the church what it's meant to be. This is where we have to leave 1 Thessalonians for now. Uh, But over the next few months, I, I hope that the Lord is going to show you through this letter some of the ways that he's at work in his church. Some of the ways that he's at work here in Redeemer. Some of the ways that he can be trusted because he has been at work in his church throughout all the ages. That even though all the world should be arrayed against God's people, as the psalmist tells us, the Lord is in the midst of her. and She shall not be shaken. I hope that as we go through these studies, the Lord will give you confidence in him when the tempter whispers in your ear and tells you your faith is probably not up to the task. That's what Paul had. That's, That's what I'm praying for you and for our church, that through these studies we would have confidence in the Lord rather than in ourselves. And if perhaps you're here and you're not a part of the church yet, we you haven't believed in the Lord Jesus Christ and, and been united to him, I'm praying for you that the Lord would give you life by his name, that he would allow you as well to receive the good news and power for the Holy Spirit with a full conviction so that you would grow up together with us in the work that God is doing in his people. Let's pray together. Oh, gracious Lord and God, we thank you for your love of the church. This people that you call to yourself, Lord, you sent your son to be a propitiation for our sins, that all those who call upon you find eternal life. You did not send your son into the world to condemn the world, but so that the world might be saved through him. And we pray that you would do that work among us. Grow us up into the implications of the gospel. Work your faith your gift of faith into us make us people who produce works of faith and a labor of love and keep us steadfast in the hope of Jesus Christ and his appearing, we pray in Jesus' name.